you have your Bibles, if you would take them and turn with me to the Old Testament minor prophet of Hosea. Hosea was the first of the minor prophets, or total of 12. Our text this morning will be the first chapter of the, of the book and the first verse of chapter 2. This is God's word for us today. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of the blame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again. And bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it, will, it, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy. This is God's word for us today. Let's ask God to bless the reading, hearing, and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. It is indeed the bread of life to us. We long to taste that bread this morning. Give us ears to hear and hearts to apply what you would teach us from this wonderful Old Testament book of Hosea. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a, uh, a pastor once told me of an attendance card left in the uh, offering plate of his church in Southern California which simply asks the question, is there any word from the Lord? And it was signed only a sister in Christ. He told me he still has that card. He keeps it in his Bible. You know, I thought of that question this week as I was preparing this sermon on Hosea. Isn't that really the foundational question beneath all of our other questions about life? 
You know, most of us are longing to know what God has to say about our needs, our frustrations, our problems, our failures. We really do yearn for his perspective, wisdom, guidance, and vision. Sometimes, though, God tells us more than we really want to hear and are ready to follow when we ask for a word from him. God not only constantly assures us of his love and his mercy, but he often confronts us with things that need to be changed inside us, in our relationship with him and in our relationships with other people. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, then as the Bible says, we have been elected. We've been chosen by God to be saints, people who belong first and foremost to him. Having chosen us and called us, now God cherishes us. He loves us more than we can ever imagine. And our relationship to him is secure because of his faithfulness and his gracious favor toward us. He will not let us go. He'll never forsake us. And all of us, I think, need to rediscover over and over again just how much we mean to God. So how much do we mean to the Lord? Here's just a little taste. He created us to have a love relationship with him. He has pursued us with amazing tenacity. He wooed us and drew us to himself through the powerful demonstration of his love in Christ dying for us on the cross. He has filled us with his Holy Spirit. He's worked in our hearts and our minds so that we can respond to his grace and forgiveness. He's given us the privilege of communication with him in prayer so that we can hear him, respond to him, understand his will. He put us into a spiritual family, the church, the body of Christ, the people of God. And he did all that not because we're worthy or deserving, but just because of his grace. So that's one thing. You and I mean a lot to the Lord. But when he chose us, he also programmed us to grow in spiritual maturity. You know, it's true that God loves us just the way we are. But he will never leave us just the way we are. You know, he's always challenging us to a deeper holiness, a greater faithfulness, and a purity of life. He's all always renewing us as his people, both as individuals and as a church body. And often, our growth in the Lord takes place through the traumatic experience of God's judgment. God confronts and challenges our hypocrisy, our lack of love toward him, our willingness to substitute other authorities in his place, and our lust for success. Out of love for us, God will challenge sin in our lives wherever he finds it. You know, if you want to consider the bad news in all of this, the one thing that God will not tolerate from any of us is to have second place in our lives. We are his people, 
And he will not be just one of many gods of our own making. He demands to be sovereign over everything in our lives, not just the source of strength for us to accomplish our own purposes. So what I'm saying is that this word from the Lord that we wait for, long for, yearn for, hope for, always communicates these two things to us. First, it communicates God's judgment as a consequence of sin in our lives, which he will simply not put up with. And secondly, it communicates his unqualified forgiveness and love and mercy when we repent and turn from our sin. And I think we need to get both of these things in our heads and in our minds. And I think studying this first chapter in the book of Hosea will help us do that. So let's just take a look. Verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now the second half of this verse lists four kings of, of Judah, during whose reign Hosea ministered. Also lists there one king in Israel, in the north. And what this is saying is that Hosea was a real person. He lived in a specific time in the nation of Israel. Now, the listing of these kings in Judah and Israel would place him in the middle of the 8th century before Jesus. In other words, somewhere around 750 B.C. It's about the same time Amos was also ministering in Israel at Bethel. And Isaiah was ministering in the south in Judah. They were all contemporaries. Hosea lived and ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he probably spent most of his time in and around the capital city of Samaria. You know, we might say, as Charles Dickens did of the 18th century Europe, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times for Israel. During the 40-year reign of Jeroboam II, who's mentioned here in verse 1, it was a time of prosperity. There was a lot of political stability, expansion, and security. It was the best of times for Israel. But after Jeroboam died, the nation went into rapid decline, political chaos. It very quickly became the worst of times for the nation. You know, in the 30-year period... After Jeroboam's death, there were six kings of Israel, of whom four were assassinated. The northern kingdom met its tragic end at the end of this 30-year period. And if you recall, most of the Israelites were exiled into captivity and bondage in Assyria. The social structure in which Hosea ministered was coming apart at the seams. There was growing injustice. In the legal system, violence was increasing in the streets. There was increasing extremes of wealth and poverty in Israel during this period. Spiritually, I think it was a, it was a very confusing time for the people of Israel. You know, there was great religious devotion, a whole lot of activity in the religious shrines that were located at Bethel and Dan. You know, but as Amos told us last week, 
the priesthood was basically sold out to the king. They supported the status quo. And the priesthood largely didn't speak for God. They didn't represent the word of God to the people. And consequently, the identity of Yahweh, this Lord with whom Israel Israel was called into a relationship as the covenant God of the nation, this God had become blurred. The Israelites had they blended in worship of Baal, the Canaanite God. There was no pure religion that touched people's hearts and changed people's lives. It was a religion completely divorced from divine revelation. And it was into this confused and chaotic environment that God called Hosea to speak his word. And dear ones, it was a word intended by God to arrest the attention of the entire nation of Israel. And need I say, it's a word intended by God to arrest our attention today. Well, here's the story. I just read it. On one occasion, probably early on in Hosea's ministry, God came to Hosea and asked him to do a very remarkable, and I think we would agree, a very difficult thing. God said, Hosea, I want you to marry a woman who's going to be unfaithful to you, but to whom you will nevertheless be faithful. You will love her, because, but she will run after other lovers. I'm asking you to do this because you and I are going to present a play to Israel by your marriage. It's going to be symbolic. It's going to be an object lesson for them. Now, in this pageant, you're going to play the part of me. You're going to play the part of God. And the woman is going to play the part of my people. The reason she's going to run away and be unfaithful is that this is precisely the way that my people act in the spiritual marriage that I've established for them. You're going to be faithful to your wife because I'm faithful to Israel, even though she dishonors my name. So, Hosea is obedient. He goes off and he marries a woman named Gomer. He tells us about it in verses 2 and 3. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame. Now, Hosea's relationship with his young bride and the three children that follow, they're powerfully symbolic of the Lord's relationship with a nation that is spiritually unfaithful to him. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly described as Israel's husband. He found Israel. He chose her. He cherished her as a bride in innocence. He's also called a father of spiritual sons and daughters who become rebellious, people who resist his authority, people who question his love. So what we see here is that Hosea's marriage and his family are going to mirror God's experience with the nation of Israel. 
See, Hosea is commanded to make the same choice that was before God. He's to love and then marry a woman who will become involved in physical adultery. Just as God was confronted with the choice to be faithful to the people of Israel when they were committing spiritual adultery by compromising their absolute loyalty to him. You know, the best way to personalize for us, I think, this dilemma that Hosea had in dealing with Gomer's unfaithfulness and God has in dealing with Israel's unfaithfulness, I think is to think of the cross of Calvary. Christ's death there suggests two things that are held in tension in the heart of God. It reveals God's judgment of sin, his jealous anger toward our unfaithfulness, his wrath that was deserved yet turned aside, and the penalty that was paid for sinful rebellion. But you see, the cross also speaks of God's loving forgiveness of sin. His merciful compassion toward our unfaithfulness, our sin being washed away. You know, it becomes very real, I think, if we examine our own lives and consider honestly God's problem with each one of us. You know, God cannot wink at sin. He won't do it. The sins that express our rebellion separate us from him because he's holy and righteous and we aren't. So he has to do two things at once. He has to find a way to get our attention and confront us. And he has to find a way to heal us and forgive us. See, these are the two aspects of God's word to us that I mentioned earlier. And God accomplishes them both by giving up his only son to die on the cross so that we might live and be reconciled to him. You know, Hosea rehearses for us here Israel's callous and stubborn resistance to God's confrontational love and grace. They repeatedly ignored God's word to them. And when Hosea in obedience to God, names his three children. It's a stark reminder of that fact. These three names, they're message names. And these children are living symbols of the reality of God's judgment on Israel's movement into spiritual idolatry. Look at the first child that's, that's mentioned at the end of verse 3 and verse 4. And Gomer conceived and bore Hosea a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now this word Jezreel, it means God will scatter. It has a double meaning. It can mean God will scatter in a good sense. You know, sort of like a, a farmer scattering seed on the soil to bring up a crop, to plant, to bring life. But it can also be a word of judgment or punishment, like scattering people or scattering a nation. And here, obviously, it's a name of punishment. God is going to scatter disobedient, rebellious Israel as worthless chaff is scattered to the wind. 
You know, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses had warned the people that God would scatter them if they were disobedient and rebellious to him. You know, this, this Jezreel Valley mentioned here had been a scene of bloody atrocities by King Ahab about a hundred years earlier than this. And then in retaliation, King Jehu had killed many of the house of Ahab. It became a name synonymous with murder and violence and bloodshed. And it became a place that God said he hated because of what it stood for in the history of, of the nation. God says here that he's going to judge the descendants of Jehu, meaning Jeroboam II, who was on the throne as Hosea began his ministry. And in verse 5, God says that there will be an end to the kingdom of Israel in the north when her military might, the bow of Israel, is broken in defeat in the valley of Jezreel. And that happened. Happened in 722 BC when the Assyrian army swept across all the Galilean territory. They captured Samaria, Israel's capital city, and they carried the Israelites away into captivity in Assyria. But note, at the time of this prophecy, when Hosea's family was being born, and this truth was being preached. It was still a warning of things to come in the future, about 30 years in the future. Jeroboam II heard Hosea preach about all this. The people heard Hosea preach about all this. They could have repented of their spiritual adultery and forsaking the Lord, but they didn't. They didn't. They were in a spiritual stupor. You know, things were, there was so much prosperity. Things were going so well. They didn't listen to Hosea's warning of God's judgment. So in verses 6 and 7, the name that is given to the second child describes a daughter who has shown no loving compassion or mercy. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by the sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. You know, the name No Mercy in Hebrew is Lo Ruhama. Lo Ruhama, it's a compound, it's composed of, of two Hebrew words, lo meaning no or not, and Ruhama meaning compassion, love, mercy, pity. Could be any one of those. This name is God's way of saying, we're going to call this child not loved because the time is coming when the sin of the people will cause me to have no pity on them. You know, throughout the Bible, God is repeatedly referred to as the God of great love and constant pity and mercy. God is merciful. He's long-suffering. His love does endure forever. But when we insist on going our own way, the time comes when the daily mercies of the Lord are withdrawn from us and we are abandoned to ourselves. You know, when we presume on God's mercy 
and continue in our sin, he will turn his face away and he will leave us in spiritual darkness for a while. Why? So that we might wise up and turn back to him. Now here's the way our own Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. The confession said, God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Verse 7, when we get to, which we get to next, it's parenthetical. It's spoken of the southern kingdom of Judah. You know, you read that verse, it seems at first to be a relief from the severity of God's judgment on Israel. And we know that God did in fact deliver Judah from the military threat of the Assyrian army. You may recall the story. You know, after the Assyrian army conquered Israel, the whole army moved south into Judah. And they encamped around Jerusalem. And you remember the story. They all died in their sleep that night. Judah didn't have to lift a bow or a spear. She didn't have to use any cavalry with horses and riders to defeat Assyria because God won the battle for them. And God did give the southern kingdom 147 more years of grace after the northern kingdom fell and went into exile. But dear ones, here's the thing. Judah, on which God says he's going to have mercy for at least a little while, Judah didn't pay any attention when the northern kingdom fell. They didn't listen to Hosea. They didn't didn't listen to Isaiah, who was preaching in and around Jerusalem at that same time. They didn't listen to those prophets. And in 586 B.C., Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, did fall to the Babylonian invaders who carried the citizens of Judah into exile. Neither Israel or Judah listened to the word of the Lord. It shouldn't happen to us. Well, the name given to the third child in verses 8 and 9 communicates the final stage of judgment that God would bring upon his people. You know, if, if these people were not shocked by the prophecies that the kingdom was going to be destroyed and cut off, and that God's mercy would be denied them, then there's really not much God could do but call them by a name that would totally shatter their spiritual pride, which grew from their being God's chosen people. Look at verses 8 and 9. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Again, the Hebrew here is lo-ami, a compound name. It's composed of the negative lo, meaning not, and the noun ami, meaning my people. You know, this symbolic name, it should have brought Israel to her senses, brought her out of her stupor. There's nothing more fundamental to Israel's spiritual identity than her relationship to the God of covenant. 
to Yahweh, to I am who I am. You know, in Deuteronomy 4.20, God calls Israel a people of his own possession. He was saying, I found you, Israel, I rescued you, and you belong to me. In Leviticus 26.12, God said, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. You see, that was how God had defined their relationship. But Israel had denied his loyalty. They tried to escape being God's people, God's holy people. The name of this child, not my people, should have warned them that for a time, God was going to cut them off and abandon them. And they should change their ways. So what's in a name? Well, there's a, there's a lot in a name. And the judgment symbolized in the names of these three children, is meant to restore Israel. It's meant to restore us from our drift away from God, to drive us back to a right relationship with Him. You see, this frightening news, and it is frightening, this frightening news of God's judgment, which is real, prepares the way to hear this wonderful news of His restoration and promises of salvation when we do repent and return to Him. You know, this family, suffering such great tragedy, becomes a family of great hope here in these last three verses of our text for today. Now look at these verses. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy." You know, the contrast here between the first nine verses and these last few verses, it couldn't be greater. You know, Israel had turned her back on God. God had stopped showing them mercy. He cut off their relationship. Israel's doom is spelled. And they go into exile into Assyria and Babylon. But I want you to see that the picture here encompasses much more than just this period of captivity. This is a picture of restoration of their relationship with God. It's a picture of them living in prosperity. You know, in verse 10, Hosea reaches all the way back to the promise that God first made to Abraham, that he would multiply his progeny so that they couldn't even be measured in numbers. It would be like the sand of the sea. It's a complete reversal of what happened in the exile to Babylon and Assyria. That's, that's where the population was decimated. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture of hope beyond that time of destruction. They will come back. They will be restored. Their numbers are going to grow. Hosea says here that although they were not God's people, now they will be called children of 
of the living God. And in verse 11, God's saving activity goes even further. Not only is there going to be a population increase, but this bitter division between the northern and southern kingdom is going to be healed. There's going to be a messianic king placed over them, a spiritual leader who will love them, serve them. And Jesus comes to fulfill that promise. And then there's this great phrase, and they shall go up from the land, right there in the middle of verse 11. You know, I may be wrong, I may be reading too much into it, but I'm persuaded that that phrase speaks of resurrection. Resurrection of the dead by the power of God. God's resurrection power to reverse any situation. See, God's going to perform a miracle of regeneration, of new life, out of the death experience of judgment. You see, for those of Israel and Judah who repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, what could have been the end for them becomes a new beginning, a new life in harmony with God, promise of a new covenant relationship with Him through Christ. And now the people who had no identity are my people. They have a new identity. Lo Ruhamah has obtained mercy and forgiveness for sin. The reversal is complete. Now, this is a key point in all of this. You know, in the first century, the apostles clearly saw and reported that these Old Testament promises were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul quotes them. He quotes them in Romans 9. And his focus on God's calling of not only the Jews, but calling also the Gentiles. Who through faith in Jesus Christ are called my people, Ami, the people of God. The church of Jesus Christ is now the people of God. The apostle Peter quotes Hosea. He speaks of, he speaks of God's elect, those of us who are Christians as a chosen generation. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. And you and I today, the church, can and rightly should apply to ourselves this hope in Christ, as well as God's judgment and evaluation. You know, we began this morning with the question, is there any word from the Lord? This passage before us today speaks to the reality of God's power through the Lord Jesus to bring hope out of the ashes and destruction of human sin and rebellion. God's confrontation of us, His judgment of sin, and His sacrificial love in Christ are meant to bring us back to Himself. And He uses both of those things in all of us. So, if you've given yourself over to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask you to pray that God would continue to confront you and your sin. You know, don't be afraid of His confrontation of things that need to be judged in your life. Things that you're holding on to. Things that you're covering up. Ask God to expose them so healing and restoration can take place. And ask God to confirm your identity 
in our beloved Jesus Christ. And if you haven't given yourself over to the Lord Jesus, do it today. You know, if you are touched by this story, and you sense that Christ died for you, then don't let thoughts of your past sins hold you back. Run to him. Believe on him. Know for yourself that Christ's love really is as this story describes. You know, we were all in fellowship with God once, in Adam. But Adam fell into sin. And when he fell, he took all of us down with him. And since then, we've all gone our own way. And I think we can truthfully be described as scattered, not pitied, not God's people. But the good news is, is that it's for people like that that Christ died. This is the story of all people who have been saved. First scattered, not pitied, not my people. It's my story. It's your story. But now, by the love and grace of God, we are indeed planted. We are pitied. We are loved. We are the people of God. And I pray that everyone here this morning would personally experience that incredible transformation and then live it out to the praise and glory of our God who makes it happen. I want to close this morning with the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. And I would pray that we would apply these words to ourselves. Moses said, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, And you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your father that he swore to them. This is God's word for us this morning. And may he make it so in every heart. Amen and amen.